the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. When Jesus, Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had, that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But... If what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. 
So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release you, re- release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You may kneel or be seated as you're able. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who has saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, 
they will look on him whom they have pierced. You may be seated. Will you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Father, be present with us in this time. Help us to dwell on what you have accomplished this day. Lord, speak through your word. Speak into our hearts and into our lives. Give us ears to hear and a mind to understand your word to us this evening. In your name, amen. <clears throat> in, the, uh, in the spirit of the Lenten and kind of Good Friday season that we find ourselves in, I want to start this evening with a confession. Um, and that's a confession that I have struggled with this sermon. I haven't particularly struggled with the writing of the sermon or even with, with the content of it per se, so much as I've struggled with the, with the tone of this sermon. Um, and really, for the past couple weeks, I have uh, been having conversations with a couple people here about the tone of our entire Good Friday service in our Anglican tradition. And uh, I've, just been, I've just been struggling with it. I've been wrestling with it. And for me, this struggle comes in the form of a tension that I think is felt here tonight. A tension between two ideas that I think are both present on this day, on Good Friday. One of these ideas, the one that's frankly a lot more difficult for me, is that it seems like here in our service, we treat Good Friday like it's so sad, don't we? Maybe, maybe somber is a better word, but I mean, there's no communion. The crosses are covered. We enter and leave in silence. This is a very somber service this evening, and, and I get it, partially. I get why the sobriety, the, the somberness is present here this evening. You can't have John 18 and 19 read to you like we just did and not understand that the events that happened 2,000 years ago on the hill of Golgotha were somber, right? They were somber events. We know that, and I get that. I really do. It is absolutely devastating to think that the God of the universe, our Lord Jesus, underwent the suffering that he did, and even more, that it is squarely the fault of me and the fault of you that he did that. That is a somber and a sobering reality. It is. But on the converse, there's another part of me that wants to say that Good Friday should be almost a joyous occasion in another sense. Maybe for good S alliteration, we can say that it's somber, yes, but it's also saving. Good Friday is somber, but it's also saving. It, I mean, we call it, we call it Good Friday for a reason. We don't call today Bad Friday. And I know if you want to be that person, the possible history and etymology of the word good, but I like to think that the actual reason we call today Good Friday is because we know that it's good. The things that happened today 
we're good. We know that as followers of Jesus, today is the day. Today is the day that our debt was paid. Today is the day that our salvation was accomplished. Today is the day that our atonement, that our reconciliation to the God of the universe, whom we had eternally offended because of our sin, today is the day that that was bought and that that was accomplished on the cross. This is the day that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, that he bled and died to take away my sin. This is the day that though sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. This is the day that we, as Christians, get to cling to the old rugged cross and look ahead to the day that we can exchange it for a crown. What are all those hymns celebrating, if not the events that happened on this day 2,000 years ago? So I feel this tension this evening on Good Friday, the day that is both somber, yes, but it's also saving. And (laughs) this is a day that makes me really want to cry tears of repentance and also shout for joy to my king. And to be honest, I've thought about this a lot for two weeks, and I don't know what the right thing to do is. I do not know the answer. But I think if you, if anybody here is at all feeling this tension like I am, and maybe not, maybe it's just me, but if anybody here is feeling this too, I think we're in good company. All of the texts that our lectionary provided to be read for us this evening navigate this tension in different ways. In the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, right, Genesis 22 that Jesse read for us, this is maybe most, the most frequently discussed passage in all of Judaism, but we see the somber reality of a father that is prepared to sacrifice his son. But in the same story, we also see the saving deliverance of Yahweh and his provision of a substitute. Our psalm, Psalm 69, speaks both of shame and of steadfast love, if we keep the S thing going. David is ashamed, David is hated, David is reproached, and yet in the same poem he is expectantly praying for Yahweh's steadfast love, his hesed, his covenant faithfulness, to come to effect. And if you were here Sunday on Palm Sunday, the Old Testament readings navigate the same tension, Isaiah 52 and 53 and Psalm 22 all encapsulate this somber and yet saving reality. And Hebrews 10 functions this evening to remind us that this somber salvation that's alluded to all throughout the Old Testament is brought to its fulfillment in the death of our Lord Jesus. So, with that said, we're going to spend what little time we have tonight on the death of our Lord Jesus. Look with me very briefly um, at John's Gospel. And, and I encourage you to, as we rehearse, as we enter into this story of John 18 and 19, feel the tension that's present here in these events. In this, put yourself in this symbolic world of this somber salvation. So, we certainly do not have time this evening to walk through this entire crucifixion account. There is so much going on here that we can't look into, and honestly, there's so much going on here in this account that is beyond my ability to understand. I couldn't tell you half of what's happening in these chapters, but what I would like to do this evening 
is I would like to tease out one theme from this passage, from John 18 and 19. Um, One theme that relates to this tension, this somber saving tension that we're talking about. I think that John, the author of this gospel, John wants us to see, among many other things, that Jesus' somber death is his saving enthronement as king. Again, Jesus' somber death is his saving enthronement as king. This, again, as we're going to see, ties in very well with Ken's sermon um, from Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry, as Ken said, and as we talked about on Sunday, is not Jesus' coronation. I think that's exactly right. But what we had read for us tonight, the cross, that is Jesus' coronation. And we're going to look at that. John, in his gospel, in these chapters, says some unique things throughout his account of these events that I think make this point. So look at John 18, look at verses 4 through 9. John is the only evangelist out of the four to mention the fact that in the middle of of Judas' betrayal, the moment of Jesus' extreme sorrow when his best friend betrays him, that these soldiers, these Jewish temple guards literally could not even stand up in the presence of Jesus without his approval. Jesus, in the moment that should be his deepest disappointment, seems to be in total authoritative control. And again, a little later on, verse 12, 12 through 23, John is again the only evangelist out of the four to tell us of Jesus's kind of pre-trial with Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, And in this account, whether or not we see it, uh, it seemed so clear to the guards present there that day um, who was actually running the show in that conversation that they felt the need to strike Jesus, to hit him for his disrespect to Annas, the high priest. Even amidst getting accused and getting condemned by the guy who was, frankly, the most powerful Jewish man in the land at that time, John wants us to get this picture that Jesus is the real authority. It is somber. He's getting betrayed and all of these things, yes, but Jesus is in total authoritative control, and everybody present can feel it. And then Jesus is taken, and he's tried by the Romans this time, by Pilate. Pilate asks him in verse 33 of John chapter 18, this question that for all four Gospels, Jesus' Roman trial hinges on. The question, are you the king of the Jews? John, then again, uniquely, he's the only one that records Jesus' comments, this little debate him and Pilate have on truth and kingship. And what this amounts to is basically Jesus looking Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the most powerful man in all the land, looking him in the eyes and saying, I am a king. I'm a king of a much different sort than you. And I'm here of my own accord on the business of truth. Jesus, this is somber. It's sad. Jesus is on his way to the cross, but he is in every step of the way, total and complete control. Then, as we know, Pilate tries to release Jesus to no avail. And so, instead he has him beaten. 
and mocked at the beginning of chapter 19. Look in verses 1 through 3. Jesus is dressed in the purple robe in the colors of royalty. A crown, a crown of thorns, yes, but a crown is placed upon his head, and he is honored as king. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, of course meant this mockingly, but it's, it's so clear that John, in his writing of the gospel, is showing us that even despite their intentions, they are doing the very thing that they should. This is, in fact, the truth of the matter. This is the king. The soldiers are ironically doing the very thing that they should at that moment. There are so many layers to John's portrayal of these events here. And they're somber, and yet they're saving. And all of this overtly royal imagery comes to a head in verse 5 of chapter 19. When the beaten and the bloody, and yet the crowned and the cloaked king is brought out on the stage before his subjects to the tune of Behold the Man. Behold the Man. Let this image sit in your mind just for a moment. Behold the man. Behold the mocked, the beaten, the bloody. But behold the crowned, the cloaked in the royal robe man. Behold the king at his somber coronation. This king was then rejected by his people in favor of the emperor Caesar. This king was sentenced to be crucified. John even makes it a point to say that Pilate's inscription above Jesus's cross was kept for a reason. Jesus didn't just claim to be king. Jesus was king. What I have written, I have written, the king of the Jews. This king carried the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain, as one did before him. This king was ascended on high and gave gifts to men, the gifts of his very clothes. This king was lifted up and drew all people to himself. All the nations were blessed in him, as was promised. Amongst all this, this king took the time to provide for the care of his mother. And then, in what is the most somber, the most sad moment of his entire life, perhaps of the entire history of the world, this king saved his people. This king paid the debt. He canceled the charge, and he died the death. The king was savingly enthroned as Christus victor by the means of his somber substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus' somber death was, is, his saving enthronement as king. According to N.T. Wright, this New Testament scholar, all four of the Gospels, their primary story they tell is the true story of how God became king. How God became king. And what we heard this evening and what we consistently bear witness to every Good Friday is just that reality. The reality, the true story of how God becomes king. How God, the, the coronation of our God 
in and through the cross of Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is here. Jesus is reigning right here, right now. His kingdom is already inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. We know this. We're in this spot in the middle. Jesus has come once, and he's going to come again. So in this spot, in this space in the middle, the question for us this evening is a simple one, but maybe not an easy one, is will we accept Jesus's kingship? Not just in our lives, but his kingship of the entire universe, of the entire cosmos. Will we bow the knee? Will we honor and love our king who died for us? I love what Ken said again on Sunday. Will we show allegiance to our king? Will we align ourselves with him and his story and his reign and his kingship over the world? Will we follow in the sorrowful and sometimes suffering footsteps of our beloved Jesus, knowing that in him alone and in his cross alone is salvation? We know that following Jesus and acknowledging his kingly rule over us, over our lives, over the world, is only possible through the somber, reconciling work of the cross. Jesus died so that we could live. Jesus died that we may live in relationship with him. This truth is somber this evening, yes, but it is also saving. So the question is, as we approach this Easter season in a couple days, will we live into this reality? Will we enter into this story, enter into this reality? The invitation from our king awaits us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.